The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. This need not be the case. All it takes is a fresh look to find the wonder in such a stark world. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and cubicle, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's presentation is Playtime, the epic 1967 comedy written, directed by, and starring Jacques Tati. And my guest is Anthony Malone, who joins us in his drawing room one midsummer Saturday. Hello, Anthony. Uh, bonjour. Oh. Vous parlez français? Ah, bien sûr. Un peu, monsieur. Ça va? Ah oui, ça va bien. Et toi? Uh, mm. Excellent. <laughs> That's the extent of my French. <laughs> uh, je voudrais uh, acheter un bon film de Jacques Tati. Oh oui, monsieur. Well, Certainement. I saw Playtime after I won a copy uh, at Film Quiz. I won it as a spot prize. And funnily enough, when I finally got around to watching it, it was during very hot weather, as, as we have today. Uh-huh. And it, I hadn't seen anything like this before. I was going to ask you about where, where this suggestion came from, um, and whether you uh, were steeped in tatty lore um, and had uh, gorged to the box set. Because uh, I certainly haven't. Um, well, this was my... It wasn't my first experience of Jacques Tati. I did see a re-release of um, Les Vacances de Monsieur Hulot. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is... It's very much what you think a French comedy from the 50s would look like. It's got lots of little skits. It's quite sort of nice and homely and quite fun in its own way. It's very funny and it's very well-crafted. I haven't seen the second Tati film, Mon Oncle. Uh-huh. But Playtime was eight years in the making. Mm. It was this gargantuan mm. project, and when it came out, no one really got it. Mm. Um, it was one of the first films to be mixed in multiple stereo sound, mm-hmm. because the sound is so important in the film, and few cinemas could play it properly. It was cut down, it was shown on 35mm rather than 70 and it's really only in the last 10 years or so that it's been properly reevaluated as great piece of work and when I saw it just on DVD at home I I struggled to really comprehend what I was watching mm. that this is 
a completely unique production. It is the only epic comedy I can think of. Mm. Because it's it's exploring a complete world. Mm. I'm going to stop there. Are, are, mm. are you going to say something sooner or later? No, I'm enjoying this. Um, I'm very relieved as well because um, it's, it's a film I had to take a couple of runs at. Um, I was very pleased that you suggested um, this film because I had zero, zero knowledge of Jacques Tati. I think the first time I heard his name mentioned was on the uh, the Kermode Mayo um, uh, podcast in reference um, to the antecedents of Mr Bean. Mm. And so um, I, I like um, foreign cinema a lot, um, but... The prospect of a two-hour French film starring a uh, a mime artist um, it gave me pause for thought. Um, the French Mr. Bean. I don't like Mr. Bean. I think Mr. Bean is a social nightmare. He should be locked up. I don't find him funny <laughs> at all. Um, he's um, very much the Michael Myers of comedy. He's absolutely. That's a good description for him. Um, so I yeah I came to this um, eager to explore. Um, an artist that I had literally zero um, uh, experience of and cutting to the chase I think this is um, a stone called masterpiece um, <laughs> and you're smiling I'm, now. I'm just delighted to hear all this I, I, uh, so I, yeah I think this is um, a knockout and it is I, I know it a tiny little bit of the production hell that um, this was to make and I also know a tiny little bit about what it did to Jacques Tati which is tragic when you consider the nature of this film and its message mm. so um, now if you were to ask me to recommend this to somebody I'd think twice um, because when I started watching it like you I um, found it very difficult to get a handle on it um, I didn't know what I was watching and Fortunately, something clicked in my head at the outset, which is, this is a film about people watching, um, and it's a rich feast, and the camera is simply allowing you to uh, observe. Um, it's, it's a gargantuan architectural exercise, as you said. Um, he literally built a city to do this, as far as I know. Um, and I, I got about an hour into it without realising there was a narrative to it at all. I thought, okay, it's a narrative-free uh, film, and we're just watching little vignettes of, of human interaction. I can, I can live with that. And it was only when I was starting taking notes for, uh, for this podcast, and I started screenshotting, um, that I noticed the young lady in it, who in IMDb, is referred to only as um, Young Tourist, um, which is our female protagonist. And she's in it from the start, and um, it's the it's the narrative thread throughout the film. So for those people who would who, if you mentioned playtime, when yeah, it's got the narrative, it's got a story, it's just stuff, uh, and, and I walked out there. It's absolutely a narrative in this film, but it's surrounded by this huge um, tableau of human behaviour, and it is extraordinary what he does with this tableau. Um, Everything is in focus, crystal clear focus. So you can be watching a couple arguing in the foreground when there is an immense amount of activity going on in the background and the character in the background that you have ignored then carries on in the next scene and you see him walking past and then having another interaction. Um, 
the thing that really astounded me about this, really, apart from the creation of the city, which is, I have to say, I think it's an act of grand folly, um, but it's the choreography of it, um, particularly towards the end of the film, the restaurant scene, um, where if you watch closely, um, nothing's happening by accident at all. Um, so I was uh, suddenly when I realised when I got the narrative, um, and I got uh, I got to the end of the film, particularly the last the last parts of the film, what happens between Hulo and and the young tourists. Uh, that's when I thought I'm totally sold. You're a genius. This is a humanist positivist message, and it's so tragic that it. But didn't he have to? Um, didn't it bankrupt him? He had to sell the rights to his his catalogue. Yeah. Um, and it, it basically sank his entire career. Yeah. And for such a fantastic, wonderful message. Um, he only made, um, I think, one feature film for the last 15 years of his life, and one television special. His name crops up on The Illusionist, doesn't it? Uh, yes, script he, he, by... wrote, he wrote the original script for The Illusionist. Mm. And I'm not surprised, uh, there's, there's, I haven't seen the whole of The Illusionist, I confess, but there's a, now that I know what he looks like, um, uh, there's, this, there's definitely a, a Hulo um, avatar mm. in that film. Um, so, um, a big shock, this film, um, and uh, I was just really stunned, particularly by uh, the precision of the end, um, and, and how, the, how there's a shot of the, the lights of the city, which is, which is mirrors right at the start. The girl is looking up at the start with the, the, the street lights, which look like the flowers that she eventually gets, and at the start, that's an image of yearning. But then as she goes through the film and the city starts to get a pulse right at the end when um, uh, she gets the gift um, and then she gets the flowers and the flowers um, look exactly like the streetlights. And it's that message of, of, um, of affirmation. Can you imagine what this film would have been like if it had been made in Britain? Oh, it would have been miserable. In Brazil. Oh, yeah. They absolutely would have been Brazil. When I started watching Playtime, and um, it, it starts with a shot, uh, well, it starts with a couple of interesting shots. It starts over clouds, and and the name of the film, Playtime, I, I had to get my head around, and I just think that is the title um, that a, a total artist would choose. It's, I'm just going to present this to you, we're going to have a lot of fun, there are no rules, um, blue sky thinking, and I'm going to tell you a nice little um, um, comforting narrative. Mm. Um, and the city in things like Blade Runner, Ridley Scott, in Brazil, in, um, in even, um, well, various other things, you know, even in some like the Matrix, um, is a brutalist nightmare. And it's, uh, it breaks people down, particularly in Brazil. It destroys, um, uh, destroys people in their dreams. And so I was primed to go into playtime, thinking along these lines. Right, he's gonna. This is going to be um, uh, championing the little guy against the uh, the status quo. The architecture is going to be horrible. So the last thing I expected was for the city to slowly start to develop colour and to come to life. And it's all by the people in it. This guy's championing people. It's pro-humanity. This yes. film. Absolutely. It's yes. It's a brutalist nightmare, and it's it's all very funny, and there's glass doors, and there's funny furniture.
but um, the the energizing factor is definitely um, his vision of humanity, which is 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 very optimistic. In Brazil, the vision of humanity is you've only got one guy who's got a dream, and that gets killed stone dead. Mm. Um, not so in um, in Jacques Tati. I mean, he doesn't have Hulo and the young tourist hook up and and marry him and all of that. No, but it's just a little. Um, here's a little present from an almost complete stranger to send you off with faith in humanity. Mm. And God knows do we need stuff like that these days. You know, when you're watching Batman versus Superman, two of the great <laughs> heroes of, our, of American culture, beat each other's brains out in the pouring rain, and then you watch Playtime. It's light and day. Mm. Um, it's extraordinary. You're looking very pleased and satisfied. I just, I just enjoying all the praise that this film's getting because it's a bit less like a proxy for me. Because I recommended <laughs> you this film and you know nothing about it. Yes, I, I'm totally sold on it. But it took me a couple of goes, um, and I think it was when I started doing my screenshots and I picked up on the fact that uh, it was literally halfway through the film where uh, the girl. Um, who I believe only had one acting role, IMDb is yeah. correct, and she was very disillusioned about acting, and the process of making this film did nothing to stop her from being disillusioned by acting. I spotted her um, with her camera going out on the town with, on the coach, um, and then I realised, oh, she's cropping up there as well, and then there, and then she's on the piano, and then Hulo trips up and starts making her laugh, and then I realised, actually, I need to go back to the start and watch all of this, because she's the girl on the coach right at the start. Um, and then I realised, of course this is a, 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 of course there's a narrative to this. She's even in the bus that goes by outside the apartment building, where Hulo is inside. Ah, um, I did, I'm not sure I spotted that. You mean the one where he goes and his business contact is in one of the other uh, yeah, rooms and, and he, they miss each he, other? he's bumped into his old friend and goes into their little flat... Yeah, and they watch home movies and, and people watching each other. Yeah, watching through the mm. wall, and then the businessman is taking yes. the dog for a walk, and they miss each other and again, they, and they keep missing each other. Yeah. But eventually, they do meet up, and they and they go away and they talk, and then we see them say goodbye and they part on good terms. Yes, but it's it, they're they're not meeting in the stiff business world. They're meeting casually. He's dressed casually. He's been walking his dog. They talk mm. in a friendly. He's got a broken nose. He's got he's repeatedly getting the shit kicked out of him. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe for uh, for listeners, we should just um, give a brief summary of the the slight plot of this film. Well, the the beginning thread is that Hulu, who's you know, we've seen in the two previous films, he's a somewhat accident prone, but generally just a, a, a friendly, pleasant fellow. He's arrived in Paris, mm. very, the very modern Paris of the early 60s, for some kind of business meeting or job interview. And just to interject there, it absolutely is Paris, because A, you see the Eiffel Tower. Oh, yes. It's Paris, and someone on the coach says, uh, this is what Paris oh, yeah. is like. It's, it's, I mean, it, it is unequivocally Paris, but it's a constructed, mm. modernist Paris. We only ever see things like the Sacre Coeur or the Eiffel Tower reflected in windows. But as I tweeted you... Uh, a couple of shots of the offices. Um, they are indistinguishable from the offices that you will currently find around Tower Bridge and uh, in Canada Water. I know. It is and, scary. And they also have the gag in the travel agents, where you have the pictures mm -hmm. of all the destinations all That's over right. the world, and they all have these identical tower blocks <laughs> yes. in them, but with like a black cab in front of one for, yeah. for London, a yellow cab for New York, and just these one 
tiny difference. But isn't that so true? And it's always the human touch that's different. It's the uniformity of the corporate experience across the region. And it's just the, the little, uh, it's put there. It's like the thing in train spotting where Danny Boyle suddenly switches to London and he, he deliberately gives you a lot of cliched London iconography. And it's a very knowing wink. Yeah. But um, that shot of all the posters is, it has uh, our, our, our young tourist um, protagonist looking at it. She wants to travel, she has a lot of yearning inside her. Mm. Um, but sorry, I, I, I stopped you from doing the, the summary of the film, but. Um, so, uh, Hulot gets caught up in the, in the, the overcomplicated corporate world. You know, there's all sorts of there's, there's waiting rooms to go into, and and he gets confused and winds up wandering into a lift, and then winds up going into the wrong building when he thinks he's looking at someone in another building, but it's actually a reflection of someone who's standing almost next to him. So he goes into the other building and then gets caught up in some kind of product expo. Yes. Of all these. And it, that's just that's pure satire of all these ridiculous products. And there's a it's there's also a backstage element to all of this where um, we're seeing we're seeing what goes. One thing I really like in movies is where we see what characters are doing when the film is going on somewhere else. Mm. And here, it's as if there, there isn't a film going on anywhere. No. This is just yeah. This is just people's ju- lives. It's a documentary. They've just filmed the city. Um, it's also worth saying that I my fear about um, Monsieur Hulot was that he was he was going to be the French Mr Bean, which means that he was going to be a child in an adult's body and slightly gormless um, and, and much more of a mime um, right. a, a practitioner. And I was very surprised by, um, by him. Um, first of all, watching him, his physical comedy, um, the guy knows absolutely what he's doing, all the slips, the slides, the, um, the nuances of his reactions. Um, but he's 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 much taller. He's quite stocky. He's um, he he's dashing around the place, um, and and you just look at him and think, um, production-wise, in my opinion, this film is on a par with Wizard of Oz and Casablanca, which is um, total disaster, um, production nightmare, resulting in a masterpiece. But the difference is that Casablanca and Wizard of Oz. Uh, were films by committee, yeah. and it was just chance that it finally ended up in a masterpiece. At the centre of this ginormous um, film, the city, uh, the scale of it is one guy, yeah. and it's him. You've got to respect that. It's it really. I mean, he he did have assistance when he was working on the script, but ultimately, it is all just springing from yeah. Tati's mind. The whole commitment to the project, the years spent on this project, scraping together money from all over the world, um, and then having, of having to repeatedly shut down production because they ran out of money, and having to get more money together so they could carry on. And I think that um, the the few, I tried to steer clear of um, uh, formal academic analysis of this films because they are certainly out there. Um, but the little that I did glean was that uh, on set he was. Um, that people did not know what they were doing. Um, they thought well, it was basically a Star Wars scenario. They thought this is just rubbish. The the young tourist actress, um, specifically, was was bewildered and and was hoping that this would be her big break. And of course, this is a virtually dialogue-free film. Um, there and the dialogue we need to talk about. Um, 
uh, and it certainly didn't lead to a big break at all. No. Um, so you've got all the talk about the odds stacked against someone, and then out at the end of it. Um, I mean, I'd say there there are just one or two things in this film which are a pity um, that are clearly a function of the production nightmare. There are a couple of jokes that aren't paid off, and I'm thinking of the peppering of the fish. Oh, I see. So you get multiple waiters coming up. Well, I think that that's almost a joke in itself, that this... That without realising it, they have rendered this thing completely inedible. Yeah. The couple who are sitting at the table, waiting for this to be served to them, they're not going to eat it because they've seen exactly mm-hmm. how you know everything that's been piled onto it. But the waiters are just carrying on. And it's a different waiter each time. Exactly. Going up, yeah. lighting it, um, uh, putting some uh, lemon juice all over it, and then uh, you're waiting for the payoff. After three or four times of seeing this, the payoff is someone's going to sample this and throw up. Um, but actually, that's too obvious. It, 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 I've seen a reading where someone says actually the joke is that there is no punchline, uh, and that's that's that Tati's genius. But actually, I wanted a punchline there. And when the the new um, um, diners, the, the guy literally just with a wave of his hand sends it away. You think, oh, and you say, was that building up to something that never quite reached fruition? Um, so I thought of that. But apart from that. Um, despite the production nightmare, I just think, uh, I struggle to think of anything where, um, it's, it's really odd to look at a film and think, yeah, this, this is a, um, an astonishing piece of work and I still wouldn't um, recommend it as a night in with other people. And if I did watch it with someone else, I'd have to constantly be saying, watch that person. And there they are again. Here they are it, again. It really is something that requires multiple viewings because yeah. you have several scenes happening at once. You've got something in the foreground, mm. you've got something in the background, you've got whatever um, the sound is doing because the sound mm. is mm-hmm. it's really important. It's, it's extraordinary the way that the sound is used all the way through the film to tell the story, even just as a joke. Like the, the man who's going around the expo picking up brochures and popping them under his arm, slapping them under his arm. And that's the only noise he makes. Mm-hmm. And that, the nuns at the start have squelching. It's like they're wearing trainers. And their, the, the little peaks on their wimples are flapping as they go by, like birds. Um, Tatty's central thesis of the film, I think, is really nicely illustrated. At the beginning of the film, where you've got the people in the airport, they're walking in straight lines, turning sharp corners. Uh-huh. At the end of the film, you've got... The roundabout, uh-huh. the cars, everything going in a circle. Tatty's thesis was, it's the story of how a straight line becomes a curve. Mm. Is that your analysis of what his thesis is, or did he state that? I believe that's his statement. Well, I think that would be it's a not, beautifully elegant way. It's of, not a, it's, I would like to lay claim to the phrase. I believe it's him, if not, then someone else said that's, and that's where I read it. I, I, I think so. I was caught off guard by what he does with the city because um, at the start you think oh, this is going to be a condemnation of, uh, of what, what's um, you know, sort of Prince Charles position of new architecture and what it's doing to beautiful Paris um, then effectively he goes backstage to the expo yeah. and he sees where it's all being made and there's some really nice bits in this film where the pretense of life in a city is sent up so Hulot um, sits at a desk in the expo as if he has now got an office job um, and, and is fired 
from that <laughs> from that pretend office job, um, and he has to come back and ex- and get explained to sorry about that, and, and he has a wonderful little payoff, little moment of slapstick where he he shakes the hand of the guy that's just fired him and crushes his glasses by yeah. accident. The guy, of course, puts the glasses on. And, and half of them are sort of That's crawling right. up his forehead. There's another moment of pretense where, um, uh, in the restaurant scene, where half the restaurant falls apart, and the the guy, the agent of chaos, the American guy, basically decides to set up his sub restaurant, an an elite version of the restaurant in the restaurant, um, and they all pretend that let's ignore the chaos. Yeah. Uh, what they're doing is basically what's happening in the outside restaurant in miniature, but they're doing it with a degree of knowing and a scenario. And what about the guy, the doorman? When the, the the glass door shatters, and he's still, he's still pretending still opening by the, door. the handle in the right yeah. place. And there's a moment where the doorman runs over to a gap between reception and a wall, pretends to be opening the pretend glass door. Hulo comes and bangs into another guy coming up into him. There's no glass door there, and what does he do? He holds his nose as if he's just banged his nose <laughs> into the glass door. So there's a subtle little commentary on the pretense of living, the little roles that we're all, we're all playing in this. Yes. Um, and so it's, it seems to be that there's, there's a couple of stages from this. He goes on a very uh, labyrinthine walk around uh, the standard office block. And as someone who's worked in a lot of places like that, um, I'm here to tell you that that's, that's not a work of fiction, that's a documentary film. Um, <coughs> the open plan office is a horrible place to work. I'm sure you've, you've worked in oh, places like that. Yeah. Because I don't know about you, but um, idiots will say that um, open plan offices are very friendly places to work. You can see everybody. There's lots of chatter and hubbub, etc. And actually, they're incredibly alienating places to work because you are constantly witnessing activity that you are not a part of. You can't control the temperature. You can't control the light. And the the implicit statement of you being in a desk at one of these benches and a huge, great big wash of tables in front of you is that you are interchangeable. Absolutely. It's, you can just be just plucked out, we'll get someone else with the same skills and we'll drop you in. That is anti-human. And Tatty's in tune with this. Look at the shots where um, Hulo is going around the, um, the, the offices, the cube, the square cubicles. Mm. Um, Hulo's always, well not always, a shot a lot as the observer. There's lots of my screenshots are of him with the back to the camera and he's looking at someone else. So he's positioned as the outsider. Very French thing. But um, just to get Sudi for a moment, it strikes me that the Tatty would be um, much more of a on Albert Camus' side than Sartre's side. So Sartre would go, uh, this is an existential nightmare. Um, kill yourself. Um, there's no God, there's something to believe in, bollocks to a lot of it. Camus went, yeah, but it's all absurd. And the reason that we live is that we push the, the, the boulder up the mountain. We know it's going to fall down, and it does fall down, but the absurdity of life is that you then go back down and you push the boulder back up again. Tati would love Camus' absurdism, the sense that life is a massive joke. He's in tune with that. Um, when he's walking around the, uh, the open plan office, there's a great shot of Hulo looking down on the, um, the cubicles. And uh, and this made me want to see the film on a huge big screen because his contact is top left of the screen and then Hulo comes in at the bottom left and they switch positions. It's like little rats in a maze. And you can follow... I followed the geography of this. Followed his um, contact walking out down the left of the screen, out of that office. Hulo spots him. 
and chases after him. <coughs> they cut to the next shot, different part of the, the front of the building, and the business contact comes in uh, from the right of the camera, walking left, um, disappears off, Hulot chases after him. So this is a real place. The geography is really well laid out. Um, um, it then moves into the expo, um, and then it moves into um, a nice house on the town, basically. Yes, the, the second half of the film, pretty much entirely, is that is a that, restaurant that scene. Restaurant scene. It is forty towers. Which, uh, it's maybe twelve hours or so of, of it's time a, through the night yeah. compressed into about fifty, forty-five, fifty minutes of mm -hmm. screen time. But presented as if it's continuous, so it's I think I think quite extraordinary in that way of, of presenting compressed time, because by the time that, mm. that people are leaving, the sun's coming up. It's cinema time, isn't it? Yeah. <coughs> um, yeah. There's a the, the it's I say it's you know forty towers, but actually the uh, it made me realise that um, forty towers has lots of is much more vicious. It's um, got more physical violence to it. Manuel gets the shit kicked out of him on yes. a regular basis. Things fall down and hit people on the head. Um, and there is there is a real sense of um, pent-up anger and frustration in Basil Fawlty. But if you watch this, there's a similar premise in that it's clearly the first night, the opening night from hell, mm. where the restaurant's unprepared. And I wondered whether there was a specifically Gallic thing going on here, where... Um, that there's an implicit comedy in them uh, having an ultra high-end restaurant with people in mink coats coming through the door, but it's not ready. And in fact, all the wires are hanging out the ceiling. It's, and all this. It, you, you could maybe trace it back to French farce. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I think um, it, it struck me that I reckon if I watch this with a French audience... Um, they would they would key into some sort of social humiliation elements that's going on here. I think there's a subtlety to the comedy there. So <laughs> the comedy, by the way, I started off thinking this is very gentle, this is very whimsical, but then actually I started to laugh out loud, particularly at moments of slapstick. Um, and uh, I, as I said to you earlier on, I took reams of screenshots of this film because I was chasing all the individual nuances of behaviour. It's one particular one that I love. It's, it's beautiful. The, the waiter in the restaurant, um, which has been very poorly designed by the planner, is yeah. walking around, measuring everything up. And uh, the waiter is, is straight out of Tintin or something like that. Some very officious, bald, hook-nosed guy. Yeah. Uh, he welcomes someone in and he sweeps out an arm and bangs the knuckles of the back of his hand against um, a brick pillar that's just his left. Now, for him to stand in the right place, just to perfectly do that, and then for him to carry on as if nothing had happened, that's perfect. That, I mean, that's such choreography. Um, but there's, there's so many, many moments like that. It's just, um, this is all about people watching. It's all about the little... So you can watch the film multiple times and, and follow the um, annoying drunk American guy who turns up at the party and decides to commandeer it. Oh, th I, I, I love that character because in the hands of, like you said, like, not, not quite Faulty Towers, but even someone who's just less compassionate than Tati, he would be horrible. Absolutely. And he would be horrible and obnoxious. But here, he's loud and everything. But he's, 
almost like, well, let's have a look at the positive side of that. That's so true. Um, stereotype. He wants everyone to have a good time. He wants everyone to relax. He pays for everything out of his own pocket. He's happy to. He turns a crisis into a triumph with his little mini restaurant. Yeah. He gets the music going again. Um, it's, it's very tempting being a, a, a nasty, cynical uh, Brit guy to look at that character and to go, he's eminently punchable. But Tati doesn't let you do that. And he doesn't give any nasty little payoff at the end. No, he just he, he says, oh, look at the time, I've got, I've got to go. And he, and he leaves money at the counter and then mm. rushes off and goes into a taxi and drives away. Well, actually, he, go, he goes from the restaurant to the excellent drugstore that's next door, which sells cakes and drugs. And bottles of French wine. Well, that's I think that's a more traditional French thing. It made me think of the French cafe culture. Excellent. Can you imagine Boots selling bottles of Merlot? <laughs> well, it's like a drugstore. I mean, you can you mm. could buy medications there and also get a, a malted, whatever that is. And then, and you're quite right. There's a point where he's he's in the queue. He's talking to various people and and joshing and, and all of this, and. The entire, it's not really a set, it's actually, basically they just built an entire city for this film. And what he does is he, he absolutely does say, goodness me, it's time I was off. And without the camera moving, he runs out of the shop, and you can watch him in the, the back of it, through the window, his car rolls up, he gets into the car, and the car drives off. Yeah. And it's all in focus, it's, uh, there's no trickery. Um, that's bloody extraordinary. Um, but then, then you get the... Um, the humanist payoff to the whole film at the end, which is that um, when Hulo connects with the, the young tourist, um, who's a young, pretty girl, she's, she's got the same curiosity in the world that he does. She's going around snapping things on her camera. <coughs> she's very prone to um, very pretty laughter. She wants to see the real Paris as well. There's the flower cellar on a street mm -hmm. corner. And you have all these very stark steel and chrome buildings. And you have this old-fashioned flower store. That's the first, up to that point, it's, the whole thing's been a grey wash. Yeah. And you're quite right, that flower cellar, um, and again, I took a screenshot of it, that's the first burst of colour. Mm. But, next to that flower cellar is a zebra crossing. Two young guys stand at the zebra crossing. Listening to rock and roll rock, music. I know, the youth of today. Yeah. And there's a good big splash of colour on them. One guy's got a red jacket on and all of this. The young and the old are bringing the colour to the city. And that's just the first little germination of it. And um, the young tourist character, Barbara Dennis, I think her name uh, was, she's snapping away. She's capturing that image. Um, so yeah, from a British perspective, watching this film, my God, does it go in a different direction to, um, to how you expect. Mm. Um, but it's an affirmation of life. You're talking about sort of the, seeing the city as a kind of a, an oppressive Absolutely. force. It doesn't need to be. It can be transformed into a wonderland. Mm. At the end, where you have the cars going around in the roundabout and the, yes. the bus going up and down. Flowers on the roundabout. And it's, it feels like they've turned the whole place into a carnival. Yeah. So and, it's, well, and it's just the morning commute. It's, it mm. depends entirely on how, what one brings to the world. Mm. It can be grim and grey, or it can be this joyous burst of colour. Yeah, I think a lot of psychologists would uh, uh, would agree with that. They'd say that actually it's all about perception and how you decide to think. Yeah. So, because um, um, when Tati um, barges into the meeting in the office block, it's a classic anxiety dream where you get this whole great big boardroom of, of uh, fossilised faces. 
mm. turning to stare at you in hostility and and, um, and I've been there so many times as well, believe me. Um, but Tati is this. Um, he's not an he's not an agent of chaos in the way that something like Mr. Bean is. He is a um, he is an observer of the world around him, but he does not let the world around him corrupt him. So it's not like I, me going into an office spot and getting thoroughly depressed and downtrodden and thinking I want to hit the bottle as fast as possible. Hulot would not be beaten by that. He would be you know, doing lots of business and making friends and bumping into the furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he's a fundamentally optimistic character and he's a fundamentally observing character. And he connects um, because he falls over. He trips over the girl at the piano. And if you watch her, I think it might actually be a genuine moment where she's just laughing. Um, he gets up and he does a classic thing where um, a couple of years after this film, Norman Wisdom did The Early Bird, oh, yeah. um, which is um, a, a film about him being a milkman. And in that film is um, the milk headquarters. <laughs> and there's a, there's a shot of it which is burned into my brain because um, it's a brutalist nightmare. Oh, Milk, milk Incorporated. And Mr. Pickens, which is Norman's, Norman's character, is definitely the agent of chaos to go in there. And there's a famous scene at that start, which is uh, ripped off by Morecambe and White's, where they're, the, the two guys who share a house are half asleep. And they're going around and they're falling over. But um, Norman Wisdom falls down a flight of stairs with a cup of tea in his hand and keeps the cup of tea without spilling a drop. It's a superb moment. Chaplin's favourite comedian, by the way, Norman Wisdom. Um, Tatty does the same thing, does it two years earlier. He does it at the piano with that girl. He trips over, but he's got a glass of wine in his hand. And when he comes back up off the piano, he puts the drink on the, on the, the top of the piano with her, and it's still, it's still full. Well, the, the glass of wine is very much the French cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> Your you, words, you're, you're not mine. You're not going to spill that. That's the national drink. That's right. Amber, ambrosia and nectar. It's like you know, an Irishman with his Guinness. <laughs> a Scotsman with his glass of whiskey. Let's not, let's not go down the role of uh, cultural stereotypes, honestly. How could we do that? Well, as for the film, it, it, it make, has fun with cultural stereotypes. The American is a stereotype, but it's looking at what's the, what's the good side of this? Did you spot the priest in the drugstore who stands the, beneath the sign? He stands, stands, stands in front of the, yeah. the, the, the neon sign so he has a little halo. Yeah. yeah. Just so that's tiny little wonderful communistic moments like Ooh, that. It's absolutely filled with these. I mean, some of, the, some of them are like that. They're just sort of little just gently satirical nudges. Some are just goofing around, like with the, um, uh, the, the broken door and holding the door handle where the door used to be. The, the the melting aeroplane. Yes, I spotted that. The, that's a, I mean, that's such a weird idea. So the aircon packs up in in the restaurant bar, and uh, in in the bar, by the way, which has an overhang, which has been poorly planned. So the barman happens to be behind the overhang and can't see. The, and so the plan is there trying to measure it up. But there's also a model plane, and. Um, as the as things hot up, the plane melts. The plane, but the, the it it doesn't melt; it just wilts. wilts. Mm. And then when they get the air conditioning working again, it goes back it, up it again. It stiffens up again. Yeah. And I thought that's a very weird prop <laughs> to have had to manufacture. Yeah. But Might have been inflatable, but but it's and and the way the environment is used, the way that everything is used as a source of 
telling the story of illustrating mm, character. Mm, the whole environment is a, everything. The whole environment becomes a playground. Yes. For the story. Like the, the drunker keeps falling off his stool at the bar eventually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the I know what you turns the stool upside down, puts the drunk in it because now it turns it, it back to the it bar. It works as a little cage. Yeah, he looks like Hannibal Lecter, but at exactly. the bar. But it's you don't get that joke until they do it because they just look like ordinary stools that are slightly over designed. What about the drunk guy who gets thrown out? Um, follows the follows the, the sign neon back into the bar and goes back in again. Yeah, like it's a pinball machine. Um, yeah, it's just chock full of this stuff, and you kind of get think the stuff that I've caught on a first or second viewing must be just the tip of the iceberg here. And also, I'd love to see footage of this being filmed because I because there are... you, you don't have the Blu-ray, do you? No. Why is there goodies on there? Oh, right, okay. Big Fantastic. smile from me. Good. There is a behind. There is a British behind-the-scenes documentary. So is... where they wander around the sets and Tati is interviewed. Okay, I want to see this. And you get to see what it looks like. You would be surprised how small Tattyville actually was. Wow. Okay, so there's a lot of cinematic trickery going on to um, make it look larger. Yes. All good? Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's the magic of the movies. I do think, um, as, as great cinema cities, um, this is right up there, but, it, but cities generally are um, hellscapes. And this starts off as, um, um, I think there are one or two nods to Metropolis. I should think so, yes. And that, that was the touchstone for well, pretty much futuristic pretty cities. Everything. And here, it's not a hellscape, because the weather's nice, the people are just going about their day. No one's really mean. It's just sort of a bit distant. And the, the environment is... It's not sympathetic to human habitation. It's just... It's brutalist, as you said. Mm, yeah. I mean, the, the, there's a running joke with chairs. Where he goes into the waiting room and there's these leather chairs and he feels it and pushes down on it and it makes a noise. And even... The, the old friend whose apartment he goes into, he's got the exact yes. same chair and does the exact same thing of pushing down and the, the chairs back are and on sale some... on the expo as well. Yeah, and that scene where where Tatty is in that, and by the way, I, I, I hand on heart, no joke, where Tatty um, is, is sent to wait for his meeting, I can take you to an office in London, which is absolutely the carbon copy of that. It's in a major retailer's, and that's where they put you to wait for, until your contact comes to get you um, into that waiting room. Um, coming out from his contact's office is another businessman. And what transpires is an extraordinary um, uh, musical illustration in musical interlude. of body language and nuance. And um, there's this guy rubbing his nose. He can't keep still. He's a fidget. Yeah. And Tatty's just watching him. Um, and it's amid all this concrete and glass and artifice, you've got these, these two um, tiny, tiny little humans engaged in all of this activity. It's a very, very humanist message. Yeah. Um, I, I, was, uh, I got sidetracked earlier on. Um, there are two types of artists in some people's estimation. Lighthouses and mirrors. And someone like David Lynch would be considered to be a lighthouse. So he will show you uh, ways to go, new, new paths. He will not shy back from telling you the truth about life. Terry Gilliam, definitely a, a lighthouse. Brazil exhibit a mm. so he does not sugarcoat the fact that actually the world is almost certainly going to destroy you and you're going to end up um, with your dreams crushed 
Tati is a mirror, he's a reflector. He will comfort you by firing back your preconceptions. And actually, there is goodness in humanity. We want to believe that, um, that you can send a pretty girl away with the present and make her day a little bit better. Um, that you don't have to be ground down by the world around you. you. You can make it yourself. You can reconfigure the world. That's a very comforting message um, to find back at you. So, um, and that's not to say that his, his approach, his artistic approach, is any less worthy than David Lynch or, or Terry Gilliam. Um, I, I think it's entirely valuable to have a storyteller like this. In... I, I, I'm trying to remember which other films of his I've seen. I think I've, the only other film of his I've seen is uh, Les Vacances. I started watching Mon Oncle. I, haven't, uh, I wish I, I, I'd um, uh, watched more of that now. And um, it's, I, I, I don't have enough of an opinion to comment on that. Though. Les Vacances is it's similar. It's, it's not as elaborate because it's, I think it was largely filmed on location. It's... It's really just about a man's misadventures on holiday. You could almost see it as like a, a proto-John Hughes film, because uh -huh. of, you know, just getting into escapades and things. But again, it's about the marvelling at the idiosyncrasies of humanity. Mm. He's a miniaturist. He, he zeroes in on the tiniest little flicker on someone's face. Um, and he finds it absolutely fascinating. fascinating. Absolutely. So it's ta uh, Hulo watches that guy in the, the other waiting room, who's, un who's unaware that he's being observed. Yeah. Um, and he's fascinated by him. He's just, he, he brings no judgment to what he's watching. He's just he just drinks and, in. and intrigued. Yeah. Um, and that's an extraordinary thing, really, because um, it certainly wouldn't go down like, oh, if it's uh, Ridley Scott making it. You fill the place with androids. <laughs> um, the film uses... You said the film has little dialogue. It does have a reasonable amount of dialogue, but it's not terribly important. But it's very multilingual. Mm, and yes, it is. To the extent where I thought, oh, um, I need subs for this. Um, and in the end I realised, actually, the dialogue isn't the point here. That's just quite far down in the mix as well. Um, it varies. When, when dialogue is spoken... I probably should have had the subtitles on. <laughs> um, but th there is... Like, the um, the doors in the expo which slam with golden silence. Oh yes, yeah, and there's another one that I really like the Greek um, uh, dustbins that they've got going. Oh, the Greek column dustbins. Yeah, yeah. against all this and like, the the broom with headlights, <laughs> so that you can sweep up in the dark. I mean, this is that stuff stuff out of the Beano. Yeah, but because, yeah. But, but because it's presented in the context of these very serious businessmen in their serious business suits yes. in this serious business building. It becomes so much more rich and absurdist. Yeah, he well, zeroes straight in on the, the comedy scene with all of that. And I suspect um, he could mine that a lot more. I think um, in, the, in the restaurant scene, um, well, scene, um, sequence, um, if it was an American film or, uh, or a British film, there would be a pie fight. There'd be vastly more physical damage done to people. It's, it keeps, as, I think you used the word compassion, that's, that's really important with this film. He's not going to beat people up. No. Um, he, he might have them trip up. He likes these characters. He does. And when they come to misfortune, he, there's a sense of feeling sorry for them and wanting to help them. Yeah. Um, I mean, no one, 
no one really comes to misfortune. The film, it, it's 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 so oddly structured as a film because films stories need to have some kind of conflict. Yeah, yeah. And there isn't really any conflict in this movie, and yet it has a logical progression in mm. plot terms because. I mean, you're talking about following the, the young tourist. You've, Tati is intended, I think, to be the central figure. He's the observer. He's, yeah. he's the character with whom we empathise as we venture into this world. And he's just watching people and intrigued by this, these surroundings. You have this coherent thread, and yet he doesn't change, he doesn't evolve. He, no. meets, he meets a lady, they have a nice time, and then they go their separate ways. And she's changed a little, perhaps. He isn't. The last time we see him at the end of the film, he's just walking away with his back to the camera down the street, mm. off home, presumably. Yeah, tripping up over the curb. I think there's, there's no indication that she requires any form of um, connection or comfort or is in any way unhappy at all. No. So it is just presented to you, um, or quite flatly at the end, but they've just had a really nice time together, and Hulo, being Hulo, um, gets, gets, sorts out a little present, gets stuck behind a bloody um, customer in the supermarket, so he can't give it to her, and brilliantly gives it to a younger guy who looks like him, <laughs> and he gives it to, to her on the coach. I remember when I first saw the film, and he, he gets stuck in the supermarket, and like getting confused between what, <laughs> what's a turnstile and what's the handle on a saucepan on a shelf. I thought, oh no, he's not going to be able to give her the present. Yeah. Oh no, and my heart broke. Yes. Yeah, that's that's definitely when the whole um, the beating heart of the film kicks in big time. Yeah. But then yeah. he finds a way around it because of just the compassion of a passerby who's having, oh yes, I'll help. And he just passes it on. And she doesn't even know his name. She says, look at what some 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 person gave me. And she um, knows it's from him. Yeah. She knows it's from Uber. Um, but it's just this this just nice gift of a scarf. And it's the compassion of it. As mm. I mean, the supermarket's really busy for that time of the morning. But yeah, they've all piled in, and he kind of thinks this Saturday morning or, or a Sunday after the party. Um, it wouldn't be a Sunday. <coughs> nope. Not because no, because they're working the previous day, aren't they? That's true, of course. So it's got to be a um, Saturday morning. So they've been partying hard on Friday evening. Um, that ending, it, it's. Um, I mean, it is unbelievably poetic, the way that it, it ends. Um, that at the start of the, the film, she's on the coach coming, in, uh, coming out of the, um, the airport, or arrivals and departures, which is quite amusing in itself. And she looks up and she sees these um, sort of, uh, what is it, sort of teardrop um, traffic lights? or um, The street lights. The, uh, they the look street like lights. Um, bluebells or something like yes. that. And that's a totally throwaway shot, and you tune it out because it's only street lights, and you just think whatever. And then you get to the end of the film, and um, the present that Tatty gives her. There's there's two sides to it. There's some sort of book or something. Oh no, it's a shawl. That's what it it's is. A it's scarf, a headscarf. Yeah. So she puts that on. But there's also um, it looks like some bluebells in the present. So she holds that, and then the camera cuts back to the traffic, the the lights, and they are exactly the same. Because that's the element. It's the perception of the world you live in. Mm. They could just be... You know, the traffic lights be boring. What? Stop calling them street lights. Stop street lights, what lights. am I talking about? They could just be ordinary, functional traffic uh, 
<laughs> yeah. Ordinary functional streetlights, same as you'd see anywhere in the world. Or they could be these mm, they're sta statues of flowers. Yeah. And then um, it's intercut with shots, as you say, of the city come to life, with people going to the beach, um, with a father... This, the, as the film comes to the end, it still has time for a few little vignettes. There's a wonderful bit with the father and the son. And the son and the wearing coat. an overcoat. And yeah. as the, 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 the father tries to hit him, the son ducks into the coat and becomes headless for a moment. It's yeah. wonderful. Um, but... Then I think the piece de resistance is where um, it fades to night and the street lights come on. So it looks like the, the flowers that are overhanging the city are everlasting. They are shining through the night. Ah, yes. And I just think, you genius. Whatever the production nightmare of this film, <laughs> you have your immortality. That would almost be the perfect place to end, except I've still got about five pages worth of notes. Oh. Let's zoom some, through some notes. And we've only been talking for 50 minutes. Yeah, we just said this film's brilliant. Watch it. I, I mean, I do have copious notes on this. Um, do you think David Lynch has um, uh, watched this film? Um, I think I mentioned that somewhere. I'll cite a couple of Lynchian moments. Um, the cleaner right at the start. This guy um, who comes out to give the um, uh, oh, yes. people in the rivals to pops a glare. Um, you have seen Twin Peaks, haven't you? You've, you've made your way through the two seasons, the original. The original, yes. Yeah. So do you remember at the start of season two when Cooper's been shot? Oh yes, with the, 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 bell, the very elderly bellhop cousin. And he just noodles around mm. doing stuff. Um, and I think Lynch saw this um, and decided to um, look at look at the the doorman of the the office block that Hulo goes to, trying to figure out the um, the buttons to press, and then telling Hulo as the guy comes a million miles away down the corridor, you stay there, and the camera just sticks there, and the old guy's just doing business. Um, that shot, by the way, of the guy who suddenly appears at the end of the corridor and takes an age to appear, yes. that's been pinched so many places. Have you, you, have you seen that? They, uh, they had to busk a, a joke of how long that corridor was. Like, there's points where he's act, the actor's actually just walking on the spot. Oh, really? <laughs> and they just dubbed on the sound effects to make it look like it was even longer. Well, I'm not, su I'm not surprised. Um, um, yeah, the the uh, the place where they're coming into the terminal that everyone's arriving. Um, uh, the gag is at the start is that it also looks like an infirmary, a hospital where they've got babies and uh, people giving last rites um, hanging around. So it's arrivals and departures of life, and indeed um, literally so uh, because people are coming in and uh, to Paris, um, which is a nice little tweak, and then. Um, and then Hudo appears. His journey through the film mirrors the tourists. So he arrives in Paris on public transport as the tourists from America arrive on a swanky coach and get fancy um, hotel rooms. Um, and so he's constantly kind of crossing paths. Um, in the expo, he almost meets the young tourist. So mm. she walks across the, the foreground. Um, and then he kind of dashes around in the background. Um, and, and, and if you're paying attention by this stage, you're thinking, I wish these two actually meet. <coughs> but my first watch of this film, I didn't catch any of this. Oh. I just thought it was stuff's happening. I just hadn't got that. Look at all the stuff that's happening. A lot of it. 
One note I have here is that the restaurant is the film in microcosm. Mm. The restaurant is mm -hmm. the city, mm. where it's designed in such a way as not to accommodate humans. Exactly. And it's being gradually eroded and reformed into something that is totally suited to humans, and it's totally suited to a much more relaxed human version Playful version. Playful. So mm. it, now it's it's still a restaurant, mm. but it's comfortable and it's relaxed. It's got a dance floor, and it's just people are having a good time and not being constrained by all this weird furniture that's leaving marks on their clothes, or the poor waiter who's <sighs> who tears his trousers and swaps to someone else, and then has to wait out on the balcony, going and, out with yeah. bits of their torn clothes. One guy swaps them. a fishbone for his uh, bow tie towards the end, he gets progressively deteriorated by the other waiters. Um, the head waiter uh, gets one of the dance floor tiles stuck to the bottom of his shoe yes. and has to clap away and get it unglued. Did you notice that, um, I think it is the head waiter, um, he's very suspicious that the waiter's having a bit of a tipple. Yes. So he draws a line on the bottle that's backstage uh, just to make sure that people aren't drinking. Waiters are loving all of this, of course. They they are, um, you know, being the worker bees. Um, they they tune into um, the comedy of it all, whilst the head waiter absolutely maintains the pretense that everything's fine. Mm. I'll get you your, your your chair, sir. There's a fascinating character. And you you still have the architect buzzing around, buzzing around trying, trying to fix everything. everything. Yeah, you're quite right. Actually, it's probably a microcosm of life in its itself. Well, I think. Uh, it's probably not what I intended with this note, but it could also be um, the film in microcosm, the making of the film. Mm -hmm. That it's, it, or making a film in general, where you've create, you've created a thing, and then as you're trying to go through it in practice, working with all these other people, it's not turning out mm -hmm. how you want it, but it's maybe turning out better because of all this influence and chaos that's going on. I would love to to think Tati actually uh, did think that. I suspect actually there's, there's, there's a really big division between the, the, the separate sections of this film. And I suspect the restaurant, the whole restaurant section um, was maybe two years later on and they went back to, um, <coughs> and he was in desperation mode and just thought, I'm gonna throw everything I can at it. Because, but what happens, as you're quite right, we look at it and go, no, it's the whole film in microcosm. And it's the production of the film in microcosm. Mm. Um, characters abound in this film. Unbelievably wonderful Frenchy um, characters, workers, um, officious head waiters. And backstage at the restaurant is a character who's only seen twice. Um, and she, I believe, must be in charge of accounts. She throws evils <laughs> anyone who goes near the till, and uh, she's this uh, vision in black, and um, and she's later on just seen I think to mention talking to the head waiter once, and I just thought she's she's sitting next to the till and she looks very suspiciously when everyone, anyone goes near her, never explained, doesn't get a name, it's just local colour, um, and when when the waiter goes up to that till. Um, a tiny moment of, of drama occurs with a mirror where the first waiter um, preens himself in oh, front of the, the mirror. The preening waiter. Yes. Who does nothing throughout all the movie. He's just always going around checking hair. the hair out. 
Yeah, and he's looking at, at all the, the couples, and, and he just appears to change his hair. He gets told off by the head waiter when he does that in front of the mirror, and is, is buzzed off. His, the, the tray that he's carrying is given to another waiter, who then stands in front of the mirror, checks his bow tie. <laughs> and you just think, it's a circle of life, this film. Yeah. Um, it's going on and on and on. The, the planner is, um, is desperately trying to, to go around and, um, and cope with the, um, the steps which treat people up, the lights that don't work, the light bulbs that fail. Um, uh, the weird sort of ceiling thing. Yes, that the falls that down. Slot, that slotted um, uh, wooden trellis by the yes. by the stage that, that falls when Tatty accidentally tears it out of the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, they they re- <laughs> the American guy, um, half drunk, is jumping up and down trying to reach for one. I think it's oranges that are planted up there. Oh yes, he can't make it because he's too sh- tall. It's a nice polite guy. Goes he's up too to short. Him. He's too short, of course. Um, a, a nice tall guy goes up to him and goes, don't worry, sir, I'll do that for you. It's jumps, collapses the whole well, thing. It, Tatty, uh, it's, it's Hula, he's just trying to be helpful. Mm, absolutely. And this could be a disaster for the whole evening, but it turns into a brilliant running gag where they've created a separate section off VIP section. Yeah. Which is, again, a mirror of the whole restaurant. But the only way that you're allowed in is if you've got yes, a crown in from the, the chairs. Yes, Um I've, and I spot those a, a lot. This guy at the bar, and or it's imprinting on the back of their their suits. The the uh, drunk American guy act that as um, a doorman on that VIP section. He's uh, and he does actually turn people away, which is rather amusing. Yeah, um, it's it's beautiful. Even when the um, uh, there's a dance scene, and uh, the some of the dancing in that is brilliant. There's chicken steps and. I've made a note of the dancer, <laughs> but mm. the da- the dancing looks so weird because it's. Mm. I mean, with the distance of history as well, because the film is fifty years old, mm. but also it feels weird in this environment. Yeah. Because you have ja- when uh, there's actually the interesting thing of when uh, a black man walks into the restaurant and he's immediately turned away. The one with the cap. I I think so. Yeah. And he says, "Okay," turns around, and he's actually holding a soup bag over his shoulder and. Whoever's at the, the counter thinks, oh, he's with the band. Oh, come in, come in, come in, come in. <laughs> so it's an interesting bit of yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, hmm, bit of uh, racial commentary there around the time of, I think it was sort of after. No, it was being shot around the time of the Algerian war. But even so... And that guy has just come from the same drugstore that um, the doorman's been. The doorman is sent out to... Um, it looks like he's sent out to the drugstore to get some sort of weird package mm. that someone later drops into a drink, the Hulo drinks. Um, but you're, you're right, the black guy in the cap uh, is very casually just to the left of the camera, uh, standing on the tables, throws a couple of coins down. Our focus isn't on him, our focus is watching the doorman go back out and do business at the door. Yeah. Uh, but that guy then follows him, follows him down the street, goes into the hotel, and, and you, you track all these people through a real world. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a complete world. Did you spot you the gliding s- woman? The gliding woman. Hang on. <laughs> um, woman moving as if on casters. Yeah. Yes, the Dalek. And um, so she, I saw her twice. The first is where she turns up, and um, so her her skirt is too long; you can't see her feet, so she glides. Um, the uh, the girl who's collecting the coats is um, transfixed by this, and is told to get back to work by the head waiter. And you just think that's a great joke. Um, brilliant 
And then when it cuts to a, a, a wide shot from the, the other side of the restaurant, right at the other end, you can see that gliding woman coming in beautifully. Is still gliding her way through all the, the, the tables. It's just perfection. You just think, yeah, this is not done by accident. It might be no, a no. nightmare to create, but this is pu this is choreographed. But you have all these things, all these choreographed elements, all happening at once, and often within very long takes mm. in very complicated environments. Mm. Logistically, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. The number of extras who are in that restaurant scene, so and and the, and it's it's not like oh sit here and just pretend. To no, no, they're not. They're, no, everyone has something specific to do. Yeah. So Tatty is presumably going around the entire set, giving everyone mm. individual direction. That's half the day gone. That's why with. I want to see the back behind the scenes stuff because I I do think has he gone up to they must have workshopped every single person because he's looking at it as a, a painter. He's painting with the people and the nuances of the behaviour. So it's not chaos that you're seeing on the, the scene. It's orchestrated chaos. Um, and it's where you can, you can absolutely watch a couple at one table and then on your next watch, watch the, what's going on in the background uh, and you'll find a richness there. God knows what it must have been like. It's a symphony, basically. Phone good? It keeps refusing to unlock. Still recording? Yeah. Good. It just keeps refusing to unlock. It's your crazy power cable doing Yeah, it? it's a bit of an old power cable, isn't it? but anyway, as long as it's uh, battery's good. Um, what else can I uh, to regale? Is we've done we've done plasters, um, tiles falling. Um, One of my very first notes, right at the start, is visual jazz. Yes, I would. I would completely agree with that, particularly since um, the opening music is very jazzy, yeah. and the music in the restaurant is is very jazzy. Yeah. Um, but it's all these it, these different, disparate elements, all coming together, despite no connection between them apparently, mm -hmm. and they perfectly mesh. It's not dissonant. No. Everything amplifies yeah. everything else. I think that's an excellent uh, description, if I may say so. Visual jazz. This is stick that on the DVD. Show this to a deaf person and say, "This is what music looks like." <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Of all these, all these th unconnected things that shouldn't work come together, and they all just fit perfectly. Yeah, but when you consider the production nightmare, you just think that truly, out of chaos and production hell, comes occasionally. Um, a stone cold masterpiece, and what a great pity that that basically it's only going to be people who who are cineasts who are going to track this film down. Um, That's why I think it's a mistake for you to not recommend this to people. Mm. Originally, now I might have, might have mentioned this before. Originally, someone else was going to um, cover this movie. It's nice to know. You're, you are my prime fallback person because I know that you can always be counted on to deliver excellent. Thoughtful analysis. Yeah, keep it coming. <laughs> um, to suit out, you mean? But the person who was originally going to cover it normally wouldn't choose a film like this. Right. Okay. So I wanted to have a completely fresh perspective in that sense. Instead, I took mm. a completely fresh perspective, but from a, from a different direction. Mm. So I think that I'm a firm believer that quality will out. Yes. If you show someone a great film, 
and they're open-minded about it, mm. they'll get it. Yes. I, I uh, went out to someone years ago who um, had lived in France for a while, and uh, we used to go and see quite a few um, French, Spanish, Italian films, and she would get this film. Um, and you're right, she would get the... Um, she would get the Frenchness of it, and she'd get the jazziness of it, and it would def I think she would understand how um, you start off by going, uh, "There's not much story here," but then it just goes click, um, and it's a feast for the eyes. That's what I think. Um, it start. It starts as just a series of little sketches mm. and skits mm. about life in the city. I think, oh, this is. It's just like a little sketch film, but then the threads emerge and you see the recurring characters and it starts to develop more of a story. Yeah. Even if it's just 24 hours in the life of a city. Yeah. I think your point about um, it feeling like that these people are existing where the film, where, uh, um, in a wider space where a film just happens to be being made that there's a sense that all these characters are real living creatures and actually they're going off down other roads to back to their flats and all of that. Mm. I genuinely get that sense. Um, and th the characters in it um, are, are, are just... They're, they're very, very well drawn. And I think a lot of it's to do with the casting. But I think um, you genuinely do think... Um, off the top of my head, I can think of several characters where I think, I wonder what happened to them. There's a guy going around, there's a short, um, kind of tubby guy who's another camera cameraman who, who appears several times during the films. And I think it might be like he's one of the tourist guides who's with the, the group of women who are going around. And you just think, what's, what's all he about? When they're in the drugstore at the end, in the last scene with the crazy drunk American guy, before he runs off out of the drugstore, one of the last things he does is to point out a guy walking past him who looks like he's um, it? It looks like he might be wearing a gas mask or something. Um, it's um, uh, and he's holding a um, uh, a guitar. Uh, there we go. Uh, yes, it is. He's wearing a strange red helmet. There's oh, the yes. American guy, and this guy who's who's got a violin case. He might be one of the musicians. Just simply walks by, and all of this lot have a lot of fun at his expense. You just think, what? What's all that about? It's, that's the, the key. Giving the impression that there's... There's life. What's going on outside the edges of the frame? Mm. So this guy's got a story. Yeah. We have no idea what it's it is. It's completely up to you because I respect the audience. Where's, where's the American going off in his car at the end of the film? Mm. Is he going to a meeting? Is he, does he need to catch a plane? There's a tiny little bit of business where uh, someone leaves the restaurant towards the end of the night and seems to get it, they get into a car, it looks like their car, but they seem to knock some other guy out of place as if he's going away, like, like they've just taken his cab or something. Yes. It's a tiny little moment. Um, so what interests me about this is, is, is Tatty's thinking, because he's, he's originating these moments, and he knows that just saying, um, look, we're going to send this character, we've, we've stuck him in a costume, all we want to do is you to do, um, look and be slightly amused by him. And then we need you to walk out and just get into your car and it will drive off. And he is confident enough as an artist to know that what that will do is build the world in the audience's mind. 
that it's not an arbitrary, tiny little throwaway moment, that it's all about character, that you're left thinking, um, who is the guy with the violin case, and where is drunk American guy going with his own car? Mm. Um, other tiny little moment, um, at the start, where the, the group of American ladies appear and they start getting onto the coach, there's a VIP who also comes through customs yes. um, with his own chauffeur. And he gets into the car with the chauffeur and he gets papped by a, um, a photographer. Although it's the chauffeur who pulls the funny face <laughs> at the cameraman yes. as the car drives off, the VIP in the back is completely impassive. Do you... Um, the faces of the businessmen on the walls of the meeting room yes. at the start. Um, now, I can't be 100% certain, but I'm sure they are elsewhere in the film. I think there's one particularly old guy, I'm sure is the old guy who turns up at the, uh, who is that VIP, and he gets driven around. They look unbelievably similar. And there's a tiny moment in the restaurant scene where there's two very characterful men um, just drinking at the bar, just swapping dialogue that we don't hear. Right. And they just look too characterful to be there arbitrarily. You just go, I wonder who that is. And I reckon the one that's specifically thinking of the ball guy looks very much like one of the ball guys um, on the, the wall of the meeting room that Tati is in. So the owners of the business that Tati visits are in that restaurant. And they are, um, or at least they're out and abroad in Paris. Um, and again, you just think, the choreography of this, this is not thrown together. No. It's unbelievable. This is a, it is a work of supreme vision. An organisation. Yes. Um, well, he, he built a tiny little town know, yeah. with its own generator plant. Yeah, and its own transport system. And its own transport system. And populated it. With and this is a forgotten film. Yeah. Unbelievable, is it? I know. It's... And it ends on utter positivity. Yeah. Interesting. What? And I think um, it's probably because it's because of its lightness, the fact that it's uh, it's. I suppose it's a souffle. It's a feast for the eyes. Um, but. Um, maybe that's why it got lost. Uh, if you look at um, a French cinema in the 60s, the film that I was thinking of uh, was The Samurai. Have you seen that? Oh, no, I haven't. Now, that's um, so a, a, a thriller um, and an essay in ultimate French chic. It is drop-dead cool, um, and it's, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful, dark film. Then you contrast it to this you could not get more of a difference. This is full of blazing light. Well, the issue there, I would say, is that the film, that um, Playtime was in production for so long that the new wave overtook him. Possibly, yeah. You're possibly, and it just started to look so really out of date. Yeah, so you had um, Abu Dassouf and Alphaville. Yeah, yeah. All these, so this, this modern style completely overtaking it, and the, the, the satire of modern life would have been absolutely cutting edge in 1960. By 1967... Yeah, you're quite right. you know, regardless of how modern it looks, it's, the message is starting to look a little bit dated, even though, of course, by dated we now mean timeless. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you're quite right there too. I think that it's... Um, it, uh, it, it, 
the, the dresses that the, the people are wearing, I would position this actually more in the sort of 50s. Um, the young tourist definitely is wearing some very sharply cut dresses. and the This green, is not the swinging 60s. The green gown that she wears. Mm. Well, it's, it's not the swinging 60s, but it's, don't forget, this is Paris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, I can imagine, that's a, that must be some kind of Givenchy gown or Christian Dior. It's, yeah, that's possible. It's, it's not, obviously, because that would have cost an absolute fortune. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if anything, Tatty did not spend, did not need to spend yeah. money <laughs> yes. on that one thing. Um, but it's, 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 it's elegance, it's style, it's a little bit modern, but it's still classic. Yeah. But it's, but it's, a, it's energy and it's colour, because it has this beautiful, shimmering green to it mm. in this... Grey wash. Grey, yeah. silverish. Because green equals life, and that's what she's doing. She provides the music in the restaurant, not least. But it's her vivaciousness. It's her laughter. And she, when she's first going out in the dress, she is quite self-conscious about it. Yes, she is. She's late for a start. Mm. When she rushes out, um, she hides the dress. She, she got her, she's got her overcoat on it. But then no. that means when she gets to the she restaurant, it has this wonderful reveal yes. of this gown. Yeah. Um. There's two other things that spring to mind as well. The radio that she listens to in her, her hotel room looks exactly like the high-rise buildings in all the travel agent pictures. Oh, yes, I think you're right. I'm sure I, I made a, a, a note of that. You're quite right. It's, it's all just, these tiny little... This, um, this block, this sort of just like a block thing. Um, actually, it looks rather like the radios that um, you see in the village in the prison. In the prisoner, yeah, you're, which yeah. is just which is just like a speaker with no controls on at all, because you can't, you're not supposed to be able to turn it off. And you could almost see the whole of playtime as maybe a, a contrast to the prisoner. Yes. What if, what, what if all the people in the village decided just to make, make it a, a nicer party. place? <laughs> yeah. And so there's the. the the odd, oppressive nature of the village just becomes this wonderful holiday village. And in the prisoner, the, when they, for example, when they go voting or when they throw games, there's a sense that, um, yeah, there's, there's there's a carnival sense, but actually they're a bit witless and they're all being used. Mm. Um, good old Patrick McGoohan and his optimistic view of, of the world. <laughs> oh, you know what that makes me think of? Fancy dress parties, because that's enforced fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I hate um, parties full stop, to be honest with you. I hate anything, particularly office parties, where you've got to turn up, uh, because apparently parties are great fun. Um, no, they're not. It depends. Oh, have going out for a few drinks. And oh, that's not a problem, yeah. Nice people. That's nice. But you know, when I go to a party like that, I want to just go like... Let's get all the people I like, just get them off yeah. into a, like a separate part. Separate hemisphere. Just, and we can just go and have a nice chat and talk, and then go back to the bar when we meet drink. Yeah. And, just, and just have our own little corner, our own little exclusive yeah. restaurant. <laughs> a VIP you know, area for us. All allowed in without the imprint of a crown on their back. Yeah, we should do that. Um, there's, I mean, I, I could literally just go through and go, look at that, look at that, look at that, all the way through. Shall we... Um, the the smashing of the glass uh, of the the door to the hotel, which oh, yeah. which which Hulo does, it's an extraordinary moment, and it looks really dangerous, um, uh, because it seems like they're playing tug of war with the the glass door, um, and um, it's interesting that glass plays such a, a a figure all the way through this this film, that um, it's only when Hulo smashes that glass door that things start to liven up in the the party. 
Prior to that, there's this barrier. Where everyone can see everybody else, but there's a barrier between you. It's an invisible barrier. Yeah. So that even though you can see people, you can't properly interact with them. And the whole thing about the doorman doing the pretense of it is the social pretense that he is keep, keeping up the, the little codes that we all hold to. Mm. Um, uh, you know, holding the door for the rich people. Uh, drunk guys just barging straight through the thin area. <laughs> um, so Hulo, Hulo does smash that, um, that door. Hulo does, a, um, it, I don't want to say a lot of slapstick, because he doesn't. This isn't um, the Keystone, this isn't Laurel and Hardy, for example. Um, but when he slips on slippery floors, he does it really well. Um, Tatty knows how to slip well and do the and fall well. Yes. Um, so when he um, brings a drink to the young tourist who's been co-opted into providing them the music, as you said, he slips and falls, yeah, but, but manages to avoid to do the glass. I mean, um, and I, I'm going to maintain the illusion that is all a seamless shot. And there's no trickery involved. I think there's from his physical uh, comedic chops. I'm sure that, that does that's, the glass go out of sight at any point? Yeah, it does. So it goes down beyond. It back. could be. Yeah, that, yeah. That <laughs> picks up a full glass from the yeah. floor. Yeah. But even but so, I don't want to believe that. But even so. The point I think stands that you know, this is mm. this is the water of life. I brought this for you, and even I me, brought you, I brought mm. you this gift, and it's so precious that I've been careful with it. And however uh, cack-handed and um, slapsticky my entrance and the journey to get to you has been, I've succeeded, and this is for you. Yeah, it's just what? What's so wonderful? His, his superpower is kindness. Yeah. <laughs> That's another DVD pull <laughs> quote. <laughs> Um, one th one thing I picked up on it's more of a visual gag than anything else, which I now can't. Oh, here it is, where he he's leaving the the old uh, the old friend's apartment. Yes. And he goes out of the door and then gets trapped between the apartment door and the yeah, main door of the I've building. Been there. And I thought <laughs> this is also the plot of an episode of Peep Show, <laughs> where they re they refer to this as the bit. Oh right, right. The landing of any block of flats where you you can't get back in, and you, but can't you also get out. can't get out. Mm. And it's just you know, I, yeah, I've literally been in so many places like that. It's unreal. Is this the first occurrence of that joke? <laughs> Quite possibly, although I'm sure there's a lot of Chaplin influence in, in the the back of this. Um, yes, but the idea of you know, apartment buildings and things like that, and, and locked doors. Chaplin things, was that's, also very. That's um, Sweet sentiment. What was that one? Um, I think it might be called the girl or something like that, where there's a blind girl and Chaplin is romancing her. And City lights. I think you might be right. I don't know why I've got the girl from. Um, because there's a girl in it. Very true. There's also a brilliant scene in that where he's roller skating next to um, what we now obviously can see is a painted-on precipitous drop in the middle of a department store. Oh, I see. And it's a beautiful piece of um, physical comedy from Chaplin. Never used to really like Chaplin. I used to find or think he was very cloyingly sentimental. I didn't like the, tra the tramp persona. Um, and then I got the box set um, as a birthday gift and started making my way through it. Well, started with some documentaries. And then I thought, oh my God, he's a consummate genius. I saw... You're, you're familiar with these React videos they yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's one I saw a little while ago of young children... We're sounding so old. American children watching the final scene of The Great Dictator. Right. Where Chaplin does the speech. Yeah. And they were absolutely stunned by it. They mm. loved it. They mm. thought this was amazing and just timeless and extraordinary. Mm. And I thought, 
Good. Yes, there is hope for humanity yet. Um, yes, I've. Uh, I I do like a fair amount of. Um, uh, obviously, I think Lauren Hardy are are gods beyond. Oh, they're, uh, they're incomparable. Yes, um, genuine artists, and um, I love them. I did. Uh, I've got a writing friend who was once married to a rabid Stan and Ollie fan, um, and tragically. She hated Stan and Ollie because of that. She went, yeah. I never want to hear them again. Oh, I can, yeah, I can imagine yeah, no. why. The, but that's... the key obsession of the man I divorced. That's the last thing I want to do. Um, Buster Keaton I used to watch a lot, uh, thanks to Mark Curry. And um, um, what was it? Some sort of movie laughing um, thing that he did where he just showed lots of clips of old silent movies, Keystone Cops and oh. stuff like that, and narrate over the top of it. Um, Chaplin never got into until a couple of years ago. Harold Lloyd? I do like Harold Lloyd. Again, ag again, it's the persona that rubs me off a bit. I do think Safety Last is an amazing film. A mm. uh, terrifying film as well. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but yes, timeless, basically. Um, don't really like much of, of Stan and Lolly's silent work. Um, but this is really the background to, to all of this, and uh, I'm sure Tati was was influenced by these. People. I mean, um, you know, Keaton and, and Chapman were still around by '67, weren't they? Um, I know um, Stan Laurel. Stan Laurel died in '65. Yeah. So he would have been around, although no longer working, mm. while the film was shooting. Chaplin was sort of still working. He was certainly assuming that he was could could get films made. But he didn't die until 77. No, I mean, there's a shot of him at the Oscars, isn't there, where he gets a Lifetime Achievement. 72, when he won Lifetime Achievement, he also won Best Original Score for Limelight <laughs> because of a loophole in the Academy laws that it hadn't been released in Los Angeles until then. <laughs> All right. So, they just wanted to give him a prize because he's Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. And, and, quite then, right and also, also kind of an apology for yeah. the fact that he'd been blackballed and kicked out of America. Mm. But he, yeah, <coughs> even at the end of his life, he, I think he was still planning on new films or more as a producer than an actor or anything like that. What, Chaplin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any intel on what happened to Tati? Um, after Playtime failed. Bombed like the Enola gay. Yeah. And uh, Tattyville was bulldozed. Oh, oh that's well, a blow to the heart. He'd, he'd hoped that it could maybe be the home of you know new French film production well the home of the home, <laughs> home of, all, of the, home of, the home of all that's good and kind yeah. and sweet <laughs> but but you know be a, a new Paris film studio yeah because all the facilities are there but no bulldozed raised to the ground bastards um, four years later he made a comeback with a new Ulo film Traffic right which uh, was largely Dutch financed mm -hmm. um, and he spent the rest of the 70s trying and failing to get films made mm -hmm. he did make a television special called Parade which is made for Swedish television which goes right back to his roots as a clown and a mime Yeah, yeah. and uh, his last work was a short film a documentary about his beloved Corsican football team which had somehow reached the final stages of a major European championship and Corsica going completely football crazy 
It's like, you know, if Aquington Stanley was in the FA Cup final. Yeah. And um, the film was completed after his death, edited by his daughter. But, um, yes, it was the, the collapse of Playtime effectively ended his career as an auteur. I mean, it, it, it does look like grand folly that you, you, you build this uh, incredible monument um, and you don't foreground the narrative. Um, what you do is you foreground um, the multiplicity of human life. That's what you're going to put the camera on. You're just going to go, Here's load, here is human interaction and we're going to essentially be, um, uh, you know, go humans. Um, but uh, it's, it, he, he doesn't really make any concessions to the, making this vastly commercial. It's, it's definitely not a, um, you know, a narrative thriller blockbustery thing. Um, I, I, so I do think it's a great pity someone... Well, it, it's great that we've got what we've got. It's clearly um, a, an amazing film. Um, it's, it's a film that makes a heart sing. You just think there are so few films out there which you come out of and you think... I genuinely feel slightly, um, slightly more optimistic as a human being that that's actually being produced somewhere and out there. You know, if you come out of Transformers, you want a newer thing. <laughs> you, know, you come out of this. How could anyone come out of this not with a skip in their step? Just oh, going. It's not raining. It's just no, refreshing. Absolutely. And if it is raining, what the hell? It's It's just you know, we'll we'll play with what we've got. So, um, but it's no one took him aside and said, look, uh, financially, this is all looking very dicey. Um, and we think if you want this to work a bit more, um, big up the love story, uh, give her more dialogue, put the camera on her more, and stop focusing on drunk guys at bars. But he stuck to his artistic vision with unbelievable tenacity. And the result is um, this film. It's just extraordinary. Um, it's, it's a life's work. Yeah. It was eight, nine years in production... It, it it is a portrait of the whole of humanity. Yeah, it's definitely his his. Um, it's a magnum philosophical opus. status um, uh, statement. It's here's what I bequeath the world. Go play. Um, here you are, all in, all, all in all your variability. But as for artistic, um, long term artistic pro um, projects by auteurs, think of Don Quixote and uh, Terry Gilliam. The passage of that film to get it to the screen, and do you know what? Tragically, the reviews have been dire. Yeah. Um, and that's where it can go. It is incredibly rare when what comes out the other end is a beautiful masterpiece. We're so lucky to have a Wizard of Oz, Casablanca, but that those were production nightmares written off by the studio. So, um, and then, but now we look at it and we go, no, that's an absolutely classic piece of storytelling. But in terms of someone who has absolute mastery of their craft, who has total control and an absolute perfect vision, you may as well say this is the French Citizen King. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say, I, I, you know, let's not, let's not throw things around lightly, but, but can you point to anything in this film where you'd go, that doesn't really work? No. No, nor can I. I don't even need to think about that, because no. there isn't. I'd say, film is what it is, there is no, there's no sense of it being, uh, the production values are excellent, but the beating heart of this film is the, the optimistic humanity of it. It is, as you say, it's the compassion. It is a compassionistic statement. That's extraordinary. You know, if you look at, I mean, Citizen Kane itself is basically a, um, 
a damning in, uh, indictment oh, yeah. of uh, I mean, it's, a it's, boy and his it's, sled. It's it's a it's a giant poison pen letter yes. to Hurst. Hurst. Yeah. But as an an achievement in filmmaking. Oh uh, yes. It's, and its influence. It's, and its influence. Mm. I mean, what's the <laughs> how much influence has Playtime had? Almost none, mm. because how can you possibly replicate this on anything approaching the same scale without just doing the same thing again? Yeah. It's, it's this extraordinary, unique milestone. Mm. It is an epic comedy. Can you think of anything else that fits that? Um, well, I want to say things that Mel Brooks have done. He did a History of the World in, in part yeah, one, and, and that doesn't really work, that film. Um, but epic comedies don't work. And look at... Um, it's, it's, what's that thing that Robert Downey Jr. was in that they threw millions at, um, that he blacked up for? Oh, Tropic Thunder. That one. It's way that's, too much money. That's a, that's a big budget. Epic in terms of... Scope. Not, in terms of scope. Not in terms of a big production. Yeah, I because can't. Because yeah. you could name a dozen films. No. But... This is about humanity yeah. in its totality. Um, Lawrence of Arabia is Do you about... Think the 2001 of French comedy. Actually, 2001's very cold and anti-human. The Spartacus of French comedy. The Lawrence of Arabia Actually, of that's, comedy. Yes, that's it. Yes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't qualify it as French comedy because it's, it's very much an international no, it's, it's film. It's universal. It's... It's a, it's a specifically French story, but it applies to the whole world. Mm. I think in a way that, the, the way that Dad's Army is timeless, because it's specifically set in one place and time, but it's about people that you see the world over. This is about Paris. It's set in Paris and the people you meet there, but it's about people that you meet anywhere. And when you think of what Paris went through only 20 years before this film... Exactly. You could take playtime to... Um, bombed out villages, project it onto the side of a wall and just sit the people down and just say, just going to try and restore your faith in humanity. Yeah? Exactly. And I think that's, that is the power of the film. But I do think um, until it clicks with you after one or two viewings, um, you, you, that may bypass you because there is so much richness of activity on the screen. It's life. He's filmed life. And he stuck it on the screen and it's... Uh, um, and, and actually, that proves to be a barrier to entry. You just think, oh, where's everything going here? The scale is too great. It's yeah. not a conventional For you to in perceive in one go. Yeah. But if you then realise, follow the girl, and then follow Mr. Hulo, and you will see them weave across each other's paths, then you'll start to see the symphony occurring, where he's building up to the restaurant scene. And then at the end, no spoilers, you're going to get the kicker. You have the two melodies. Yes, and absolutely. How they intertwine with each other. Yeah incorporating other motifs and elements as you go past until everything culminates in this explosion of light and colour at the end. Absolutely. It is music. Jeremy, you are a, a philosopher poet. I think that's what we've managed to... <laughs> well, I, have a, I had a very good teacher. Oh, really? Yes. Who was that, then? Jacques Tati. Jacques Tati. Amen to that. Thanks to Anthony for making the time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is on iTunes with more than 50 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnos is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. I'm also participating in the Alzheimer's Society Memory Walk in October, so please head over to the Just Giving page at www.justgiving.com fundraising mw308839 
to sponsor me. Thank you very much. However, until next time, à la prochaine. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. <laughs>